Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday, and uh, I can't forbear to note that this week is the uh, Yard of Yonas and Abishitz. So, uh, even though I'm very hesitant to hit on that one, but, you know, you can't skip the white elephant in the room, as the expression goes. But I'm going to surprise you, because uh, I think I am. I don't know where this is going to go, but everybody's just like last week did the morale, and everybody wants to know about the golem. So when it comes to Yonas and Abishitz, everybody just wants to know about Shabtite's feet. Because the name the name shit's controversy. But there's so much more involved with this very, very unusual person, you know, same shit's the great great among the greatest rabbis of the seventeen hundreds. And the whole part about them, the name the controversy is really understood by a very, very few people. Um, despite a lot of people finding themselves they know what they're talking about, but they sure don't. So uh, I'm gonna try to talk about the man, and like I did last week, the Marab. Talk about the person who you probably have no idea about, other than some glitting generalities and a huge amount of Baba Mises. I think more lies told in connection with the Vienna Sandwiches than probably anyone else. Uh, but uh, anyway, without any further ado, because I have a limited amount of time as always and I have to go to school soon. So let me see what I can pack into a few minutes. We're talking over here about Rabbi Yehonas and Abishitz, who is one of the big, maybe the biggest uh, rabbi among them of the first half of the 1700s. Okay, that just to put the time on, and in Central Europe. So it's a Ashkenazi rabbi in Central Europe from, I think he's 1694 to 1764. So, you know, there you go, for the first half of the 1700s. I'm not talking about the second half, I'm talking about the first half. And, which is a very unusual period in Jewish history in many respects, and uh, certainly in his case. And uh, I don't think it's well known. Now, uh, Yonah is born, or, or at least certainly grew up, in Moravia. Uh, which is this province that I spoke about. We went on my trip uh, last month or whenever, back in July, when we went to Nicholsburg, which is the capital of Moravia. I've spoken about it a bunch of times. This is an area of about 50 small Jewish communities. Uh, there's a nice map of it in, in uh, Professor Miller's book, I like, and of Jewish communities over there. And this is a little different than what you usually come across. Because most of the people you heard of learned in Poland or maybe learned in Germany uh, you know, places, that's your typical Ashkenazi rabbi of, of the old school. Maybe learned in Prague, you know, but uh, Moravia, le- less so. And uh, Moravia, very unusual place. Uh, it is true that Moravia was a big headquarters of sympathizers of Shabtai Tzvi. That is a fact. So it's just very, very interesting. Uh, he's born in 1694. His father is a rav. He becomes a, a rav of a town in Moravia. The name of this town is Abishutz. Get it? Now you understand. It's Rabbi Yonason from Abishutz. That's the name of the city, the town. And, uh, you know, this is Father Talmud Chacham. The key point is that uh, here's obviously somebody who really is a bona fide genius from a young age. But the father died when he was only 14 years old. And the mother had died earlier. So here, just as a human being who loses both parents not long, but by, by times bar mitzvah, a year later. Uh, that's just interesting. 
and he goes to learn in Prosnitz, which is another uh, small community of yesteryear in Moravia, uh, in Moravia, that's right, where this new young Rosh Hashiva uh, had set up Operation the Panameras, who I spoke about with Donald Trump a couple weeks ago, and ended up Eisenstadt. Panameras basically was one, was the big hot yeshiva, and Rios has flourished there, and there's a million stories about him. Most of them are not true, but they're good anyway. <laughs> the, the, my favorite story, like I said before, not that I'm saying it's true, my famous story is they say when he was a kid in the yeshiva, a young kid, so he was elected to be the Purim Rav. What does it mean, poor Rav, in the old days? You have to give a sheer clawly, but it can't be one word of emes in it. That's already tricky. You know, to mix emes and sheker, anybody can do. But to be kulo emes is not so easy. And to be kulo sheker is also not so easy. So how do you give a, 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 a sheer clawly kulo sheker? And the story goes that he said he's going to give a, he gave a speech. You know, was he 12 years old, something like that? Give a, a, a sheer clawly, uh, armed, uh, clothed in the garb of the poor rabbi. Uh, on the following subject, Kohamagadel Kelev Robebeso Malolavakosuki Lyoldo. Now, if you don't know what that means, don't worry. Anyway, but if you do, you'll appreciate it. Now, moving on. So here's somebody's 14. He's obviously hot stuff in terms of learning. Um, so the Russian Yeshiva really likes him, naturally. This Yeshiva was bankrolled because nobody had a Yeshiva in those days unless there was some sugar daddy behind it, by the richest Jew, Shimson Wertheimer, who was the court Jew. That was the, 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 the Austrian, this is the Austrian Empire. So the Austrian Emperor, who was pretty anti-Semitic, made exceptions for rich Jews that could help him. And the most famous of these rich Jews, who stood in tight with the Emperor, was Shimson Wertheimer, who was a from guy, very wealthy. And he, was, he, he financed the wars and the battles and all that. And he uh, paid for the Yeshiva of the Panameras. In fact, he moved them later on with the yeshiva and everything, the Panamir is to the town of Eisenstadt, and that's where I was. Me, myself, and I with my tour group back in July made it my business to stop over there. And you can go there now in Eisenstadt, if you choose, and go to the shoal and base matters and all that of Shimson Wertheimer. Uh, and, you know, they have all the stuff about him there. Anyway, uh, and the reason I mention it is, so, and, and by the way, Shimson Wertheimer was a Talmachacham too. You know, it was that, that kind of court show. He wasn't the type that was just rich and unlearned and all that. And naturally, one of the best guy in the yeshiva for his daughter. And uh, the story is that he uh, wanted uh, this young guy who was 16 years old by this time, best guy in yeshiva by far, to be his son-in-law, in which case he could have lived the life of Riley. And uh, he turned it down. Instead, he remember, he had no parents. If he had the parents, they probably would have said, take it. But he made his own decision. And he married a different girl, Elkie, from a different family, don't worry, her family had money too. Not like a Wertheimer, but they had plenty of money, and they were big rabbonim, and, and she was related to everybody. With her, he got the yichas. And the yeshiva world, the rabbinical world, if you ain't married to the right person, you ain't going nowhere. I don't care who you are. So he made his business now that he's not only... Of course, on the other hand, if we would have married the billionaire's daughter, he could have written his own ticket. So it's just interesting that in that world of yesteryear, if you were the best guy in yeshiva, you could, you could have quite a, an interesting future. But he married this girl whose father was a rich rabbi in um, in Bohemia, actually. Now, you probably know what I'm talking about. There's a country called Czechoslovakia. No, there's not. There's a country called Czech. It used to be Czechoslovakia. Now they're two countries. They got divorced from each other back in the 1990s. Now there's a country called the Czech Republic, which is composed of two parts, Bohemia and Moravia. And her father was a rabbi in Bohemia. 
As a matter of fact, he eventually became the chief rabbi of Gantz, Bohemia. There were two chief rabbi positions. They were not identical. One was the chief rabbi of Prague, and the other was the chief rabbi of Bohemia. It's a little confusing, but it means he came from a Hushim and wealthy uh, family, and he was related to everybody. You name me a big rabbi from Central Europe in the early 1700s, and she was related to him. So by marrying her, he made money, but he also married, like, uh, what's the right word? Uh, pull everywhere, everywhere, you know, related to Abram Broden, the Shwith Yaakov, and the Kakam Tzvi, and this, and that, and the other. Now, um, from his father-in-law, he moved in with him, and he spent a year or two learning Halacha Lamaisa, because his father was a Rav. So in Yeshiva, you learn Pilpul, uh, especially in those days, the golden age of Pilpul. And, uh, or maybe it's not a golden age, whatever. Uh, from the father-in-law, you learn Halacha Lamaisa, so he will emerge... I'm talking about Yonas and Eishitz now, as A-plus um, in the area of Halachalamites and also in the area of Lumbus. You don't find that too often. Now, um, when he's 19, he moved to Prague, then he moved away for a year, but eventually he settles in Prague like when he's 20 years old with his wife. Remember, her father and relatives are all big machers in Prague. We've talked about it before. For a guy like him living in small towns in Moravia, to move to Prague is like a guy... I don't know, you know, some small community in America with a coal somewhere, and then moving to Lakewood, or Muncie, or something like that, you know, or B'nai Brock, uh, because Prague had like 10,000 Jews, and a bunch of yeshivas, not one, and some really significant Talmud that come, so you're really coming to the headquarters, if you're a Lundish guy, and he sure was, you're coming to the place where a lot of people to talk to and argue with. As I told you last week and on other occasions, when we talked about the... Um, who was it? Yantav Lippmann Heller, the Tosis Yantav, and the Maral. Prague was always a city of scholarship and strife, machlokes, big time machlokes, and that remained all the way through the 1700s. Uh, when he came there, for example, there were two huge fights that were raging in the Prague world, where the Prague rivals against the others. Two very famous halachic controversies from yesteryear. I won't go into a length about it, but just to give you an idea, what I'm talking about. They both actually involved the Chacham Tzvi with Rabbi in Hamburg, and, you know, there was a lot of fights back and forth. One was what you call the Menekes Chavero controversy, and the other one is the chicken without the heart case. The first case was that, you know, you're not allowed, a lady's not allowed to get married if her husband dies or anything like that or get divorced. If she had a baby, if she's nursing for two years, the Menekes Chavero. And in this case, the rabbi in, in, in uh, Hamburg, Alton Hanavranzig, was the Chacham Tzvi, Gabriel Hetter, which is controversial. On the other hand, he was a big guy also. And all the rabbis in Prague said, it's Nasser, and she came through it, and all hell broke loose, and the whole world was fighting over this. And the second one was the famous case of the chicken without a heart, where a girl said that she brought to base in a case where she has a chicken that didn't have a heart. Uh, how could it survive? It survived. I'm simplifying, but that's the bottom line. And again, the Chacham Tzvi said the chicken is kosher. Aye, the Gemara says it doesn't have a heart, it's treif. Literally, treifa. So he said, look, it can't not have a heart. Right? And the other said, well, it didn't have art. And so, I know it sounds a little bit funny to people now, but I can just tell you there were fights over this. And so, for a guy like Aaron Sinevich, it's a young guy coming in, just married, just got smicha, just this and that and the other. This is great. I mean, you can, you, I mean, he can hock and learn with the best of them. There's plenty to talk about. Now, listen closely. Here's somebody who moves and settles in Prague in 1714. That means he's 20 years old. For the next 30 years, from in his 20s, 30s, and 40s, the best years of his life, he lived in Prague. So he's a Prague guy. And he, if it was up to him, he would stay in Prague his whole life. And when he, before he died, he wanted to re- retire and move back to Prague. In Prague, 
he built up a huge following because he had, now he wasn't a Rav, he wanted that job, but someone else had it, right? Uh, the person who had the job was, uh, mm. uh, what do you call it? Uh, David Oppenheim, who was a uh, very big Talmud and he's famous for the big library collected. I just took out of my library, the, the local library, some professor or academic guy just wrote a book on uh, David Oppenheimer, uh, it's called Prince of the Press. It must be his dissertation that he published just, re- just now, just very recently. All about the, uh, this is a famous bibliophile, which means uh, <laughs> it's, it's not a pedophile, a bibliophile. He loves books. He collected a very famous set. But he was a big time of also. You have Charles and Shubas from him, and he was a rov. And I think it's not, I mean, Jonas and Abishitz would have uh, wanted that job, and Heldy's more fitting than the rov. So right off the bat, you can see is is going to be parties and machlokes, because who should really really have the av basin or or chief rabbi position? On the other hand, thanks to his wife's family and stuff like that, they found sugar daddies that he could have his own yeshiva. Uh, as a matter of fact, he even was elected to have the official yeshiva of the community. They were like a bunch, and uh, once he got the position to be the rashiva of his own yeshiva then it's all totally charisma, right? In other words, if you can attract the guys, you can attract the guys. Here, he was extraordinarily and phenomenally successful. This is a dover, you do it. There's no, nobody can contest this. Uh, in, his, in these 30 years, in his 20s, his 30s and 40s, he must have been unbelievably charismatic. I don't know who's listening to this right now, but either, if you've gone through yeshivas and high schools and all that, you either belong to one of two categories. Either you never hooked up with a Rebbe in a positive way, in other words, you never found someone it really clicked with and became your Rebbe and all that uh, in a very personal kind of way. Uh, or you did. If you did, then you have an idea of what I'm talking about. Because he had this unbelievably charismatic personality we see over and over again from the memoirs of his students. And they were nuts over him. And it, just imagine a guy in his 20s who's a hot rusher. You can totally see that, you know, he's a young guy. He's got all the chevron and everything. And he could give these masterpiece shiurim of yesteryear, not the type that's used nowadays, of the chalukim, as they call it, in which you take a whole bunch of pilpuls and you tie them together with one grand answer, and then you knock it down with one grand kasha, and then you rebuild it with one grand answer. I'm talking about 10 gemaras at one time, and 15 tosas and all this. And what I'm referring to is a shear that lasts about six hours. You know, maybe more. Uh, we can't even conceive of that today. You know, and uh, his guys went crazy over him, and they say, I wasn't there, but they say, and in the course of these 30 years or so, um, he picked up 20,000 students, uh, which is crazy and can't be true. If you do the numbers, that means he had five, six, seven hundred new students every year, which is just not possible. But even if you tell me it's an exaggeration or you modify, let's say, for example, you tell me he had uh, 10,000 students. Even that's not really possible if you do the numbers. But on the other hand, I just want you to know that uh, I remember this very clearly. Yaakov Emden, his great enemy, in one of his writings, which are voluminous, he says, I'm not impressed with your lousy 20,000 students. Which means he didn't call him out and say it's a lie. So I just don't know what to do with that as a historian. I know that uh, uh, logistically, it's just not possible. On the other hand, they talk about this. But either way, let's say you cut it down to 2,000 students. That's still a gigantic number over 30 years, or 3,000 students, if you think about it. If you think about it. Now I'm not saying... He had a total Kesha with each and every student because I don't think that's possible. But he had a Kesha with a lot of them. And I mean a really tight Kesha. And there's story after story of people who say, oh, when I was under him, 
just pick whatever Rebbe you hold from and just multiply it a hundred times and then you get an idea. He was unbelievable. He was great. And we were so tight and this and that and the other. And I picked up everything from him and we still stay in contact and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so he just like phenomenally successful. So I, to my mind, there's no question that he was clearly the most uh, popular and the leading Rosh Yeshiva, that was Magashir, of his time. And I think... If I'm not wrong, I think of the entire early modern period. I mean, I don't know where I would go in Jewish history to hear somebody of whom a claim is made that he had tens of thousands of students. I repeat, a claim. So he might be the most popular Shiva of all time or something. I don't know, but certainly you don't hear about this today. Uh, That's number one. Now, in addition to that, he also got elected as um, the Magid, in Pragda called the Darshan which is an official position. You remember the old days. I spoke about it in these podcasts many times. The top job was divided into two. One is the Rav, and his main idea, thing is to preside over the Bez, and Paskin the heavy Shilas. That's number one. Doesn't have to be a speaker or anything like that. Then the city would hire somebody, especially Prague, would hire somebody who's called the Magad or the Darshan, and his job is to give all the speeches, like they say in Baltimore, to give the Rabbi France speeches. Now, um, you know, on all different occasions. And so... Hear this well. He's interacting with two tzibors. In the yeshiva, he's interacting with the talminim, the teenage guys, a giant population. Uh, number two, when he gives the public speeches, he's interacting with the people of the community, uh, which is a much larger audience. So one is the school guys, and one is the, the balabatim. Clearly, to me, it's not even a question, he's the greatest orator of the 18th century, and perhaps the 17th as well. I mean, uh, it's not a question. And a small part of his many drushes are published in the Yaros Dvash after his death. And I use them today. Uh, many times, I, they're amazing, but this, each one is a six-hour speech. I'm not exaggerating. You think I'm exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. Maybe even a seven-hour speech. And it's unbelievable. How do you hold an audience that long? And if you read them, and I've read them and I've many times in my show and elsewhere, I've given classes where we would go through his drushes in the Yaris Dvash, especially Purim time, and it always happens. The people in the audience first start yawning and say, oh no, where's this going to go? Within a minute or two, you got him, baby. And <laughs> their eyes are peeled because he's just very good. And he's a master orator because he knows as he goes through page after page of his long drushes, he knows how to throw in a Gavaldiguar Torah, and then right afterwards, I think from the Kabbalah, and then once he got your attention hooked, then he hits you in the solar plexus with the social uh, criticism. You guys are eating too much, you're not supporting the poor, uh, boys and girls are hanging around, which he's always into boys and girls hanging around with each other, and things like this. There's no question, if it was up to Jonas and Abishitz, he would totally be in favor of the no women and no women's pictures in the Mishpacha, you know, he's that type. And, uh, Kind of again, and all these sorts of things, but not—I I don't mean in a dumb way. You know, he talks about Rosh Hashanah. It's Rosh Hashanah at many levels: kabbalistic, moralistic. He's just very good. What can I tell you? He's always got these highly unusual uh, uh, insights into more Rashi Tosis and this and that and the other and Midrashim. And uh, you know, I won't say each and every one is amazing, but a lot of them are. Uh, and that's just my personal opinion. So. Uh, how do you keep an audience for hour after hour after hour, all this sort of thing? And that's just a small fraction of what he did. So the guy was unbelievable. The bottom line goes that here you have somebody who's a two for one. 
He's, when you get him, you get an unbelievable market share. I repeat, an unbelievable market share. And number two, you get an unbelievable speaker. That's a pretty good deal. And he liked it. I mean, he had a ball. And so all during his 20s, his 30s, and his 40s, when you got your energy, you know, he's throwing himself into these tasks. And uh, at the same time, he is Team Abishitz. There's also Team Oppenheim. You don't know that the, the Rav has his followers, and another group has his followers. And so like everywhere, but particularly in Prague, the city is going to be divided into a population consisting of its extreme Hasidim, extreme Hasidim, but also consisting of its extreme misnagdom, extreme opponents. This is very interesting. This is the politics of Prague in the first half, first two-thirds of the 18th century. It's just uh, just very interesting on that level. Uh, and he is able to... By the way, I'll tell you something else, and I don't know how he did this. Some One of the things he did... First of all, you need money. So he had, obviously he had bankrollers. There's no way you can get these huge number of guys in there. Somebody's got to pay for the food, even if they eat a little bit of bread, you know. Bread and water, which is what a lot of these people ate, pasta milk tocha, slept on the floor in the in the shoals and all that. They really did. Um, in those days, people really cared about learning. Even if you do, I mean, still, these huge numbers uh, eats up the money all the time. So guess what? He, I don't know, somehow or other, he got a law degree. Can you believe it? He got a law degree. Now, he didn't go to the as far as I'm aware, and it would have been found by now if he did, he didn't go to the University of Prague Law School. I don't know if they had such a thing like that. Uh, but he, he he must have clapped tested and he got a lawyer. He became a, a lawyer of a certain type. As best as I can tell, now I only discovered this a couple of years ago, as best as I can tell, I'm going to tell you, this is my podcast, I'm just going to tell you my bike story, my, my guess. I think his rich relatives and friends, how are you rich in the 18th century? How are you rich? There's no stock market. How are you rich? The answer is through trade. You know, you bring in merchandise, import, export, as we call it today. Uh, so that requires a lot of paperwork and bureaucracy, does it not? And especially if it's Prague during the 18th century, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Austrian Empire, it's like notorious for the red tape, the bureaucracy. That's who they were. And there are a million laws and this and that and the other, regulations, rules and regs. And so, as best as I can tell, he became like a, shall we say, a commercial lawyer in the sense that he handles all the legal work involved in all these, um, uh, mercantile transactions. So it's not a litigator in court. It's someone who handles, as I say before, all the business law and that sort of thing. And there's no question in my mind that his family and friends must have thrown all the businesses away, right? And so he can make a decent living like that. But how do you have a career? That's a full-time career. I mean, how do you have a career as a lawyer in a real law firm, you know, handling real transactions, and at the same time, knock out the six hours you heard him at least once or twice a week, and then, also on many, many occasions, knock out these six-hour uh, the you know, speeches, uh, which are full of everything. The answer is, is a genius. You know, there's, there's no, there's no, it's not you and me. It's not a typical situation at all. And the result is that he was, uh, you know, held in awe by his admirers, which is really why everybody got freaked out when they started accusing him of Sabatianism. And, you know, 10 years after he was in Prague, letters came out, by other Shabtites Phoenix that they say he's our Rebbe, our supporter, and he said these are forged letters, and you know, all whole thing going back and forth. You know, it, 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 it you can see what a shock it was, you understand? And anyway, so this is how he went on. Now, here you got somebody running a law 
and you got running, uh, what's the other thing, a magashir, and what's the other thing, uh, draw, uh, giving a speeches, darshan, a magid, of unequal power. I'm not exaggerating, I'm just giving you what I think. And, uh, of course, he wanted the top job, to be Durov also, then he would have everything. Why would you be so ambitious? If you're that good, you're that ambitious. I mean, I can understand that totally. And uh, he never got it. When Rebdovenheimer, who was 30 years old and him, died in the 1730s, they would not elect him as chief rabbi of Prague. He was interim, you understand, in the 1730s. And it must have been very frustrating for him. And I'm sure he must have been plotting with his followers sooner or later to obtain the top position, which he deserved. Listen, if you're talking about pure ability then yes, unless you believe the people who said secretly he's a heretic, which they didn't believe. And so, it, you see how tangled the politics is. That would bring you up to the to 1740 or so, when he would be in his 40s, uh, would be uh, 1694. So he'd be, you know, uh, I guess 46, uh, which is not, you know, not old. That's when all hell broke loose. Because the 1740s, European politics impinged on everything. Uh, a war broke out called the War of the Austrian Succession. I'm sure you have no idea what I'm talking about. These are wars of Frederick the Great versus Maria Theresa, of which there were two rounds. This is round one, and the Seven Years' War from 1756 is round two. So this war is a war, you can look it up if you're interested, that lasted from 1740 to 1748. It's a very famous war if you're a nut and you know all your European history details and that sort of thing. It's actually extremely interesting uh, now, in this situation, to, to, to dumb it down as much as I'm capable, the king of Prussia, Frederick the Great, invaded Bohemia and captured a province there and held it called Silesia. And all hell broke loose and Europe formed into two uh, coalitions. They fought each other because the Austrians wanted to get, be- get it back. In the course of this Prague from 1741... To 1745 went through a tough time because first they were occupied by an invading French army and then when they were kicked out they were occupied by a time by Frederick the Great's invading Prussian army. You hear what I'm saying? So in 1741-42 and, and, and into 43 and then in 1744. Now why am I giving you all this business? First of all the city's a war zone. That's number one. Number two I mean that's never good. Number two uh, the Austrians were the ones who originally owned Prague, and by the time it's all over in 1745, they got it back. Now, the Jews, when they were living under the Jewish community, when they were living under French occupation and Prussian occupation, they just tried to get along. So, whoever's in charge, that's you do business with. What am I supposed to do? I'm a civilian. I'm a poor Jew. Well, the Austrians were beyond P.O. They were really angry at anybody who would be traitorous enough to cooperate with the enemy. And the Empress Maria Therese of Austria, who was the ruler was extremely anti-Semitic from anyway, from even before this. And so by the time it's over, the Jews were kicked out of Prague. It's the last great expulsion of the Middle Ages in 1745. Uh, and Prague and Bohemia, by the way. And so uh, it was a tough business. In the middle of all this, while Prague was occupied by the French army, you know, it's an Apeshitz, who seems to have given up on ever getting the position of chief rabbi of Prague as long as his enemies were such a strong force. Like the morale I told you last week. You know, you have your team, but they're a big team against you. And so he said it's never going to happen. And so he ex- he decided to seek his fortune elsewhere. Meaning, 
if my own city, which he loved, and it was up to him, he would stay there. And like I told you before, Prague had all the yeshivas, and Prague had all the big community, and the alumnus, and all the great opportunities. And it's a pretty city anyway. It's a nice city. I was just there. But he said, it's just not going to happen. And so what else is out there? And so the city of Metz, the Jewish community of Metz, which is the other side, which is in France. Remember, the city was occupied by the French army. So they elected him as the Rav there, and he decided to take it. And so the French garrison led him through with a safe conduct to, to, to travel in the middle of the war through the French territory to become the rabbi of Metz. Of course, from the Austrian point of view, it means he cooperated with the enemy and his Chayav Misa. You know what I'm saying? And he was declared an enemy of the state by the Empress Maria Theresa and his Chayav Misa if he ever steps foot in Austrian territory. Woo! His enemies, well, it depends how you look at it. You could say, what a coward. He abandoned his community in the middle of the siege. Alternatively, you can say he did like Yochum and Zakai. When he went to Metz, he worked Yom Belayla. He really did to try to rescue as much as possible the Jewish community of Prague, get the money, organize an international lobbying effort, I kid you not, to get the Austrian government to change its mind and revoke the expulsion, which eventually it sort of did because of the intervention of the English and the Dutch and others. And so it's an extremely complicated and fascinating story. I told you, to do this right, I need five hours just like one of his speeches. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. I think you're getting a little bit of an idea from the little, I'm just scratching the surface. Well, I'm telling you what a complex and unusual individual this was. Already, when he was in Metz, he's already, uh, now by the way, I left out one thing, which I shouldn't have left out. I'm just blabbing over here. In addition to him having a home run in, in, in the Gemara and a home run in the, in the Drushes and all the rest of it, he, uh, a home run in the Kabbalah. It's, he, he knows he was a, a big McCubble. Everybody knew that he's a, you know, he knows that Rizal stuff, unbelievable. Matter of fact, his student, who's a real from guy, wrote in a hesped of him, I'm talking about Heidlitz, and the R.A. Sham, I have to say for it. He said, you didn't know my Rebbe, you know what In Nigla, he was like the Rambam. And in this story, he was like the Rizal. Those are big statements, <laughs> right? Even coming from a student. Uh, he was a giant in the Kabbalah, which is precisely why people started going to him and getting kamias Because, you know, if you're sick or something like that, miscarriages, you write a kamia with the with the right uh, shamos, with the right uh, formulas, letter, you know, Hebrew letters in certain ways, it's supposed to bring refu and atzloch and all the other sorts of things like that, if you're into that. And there are books, by the way, on how to write kamias which were not unpopular in the 1600s, 1700s. I have myself a very famous collection which is the most famous of them all, and it's called, oh yeah, yeah, it's called Sharshe um, Hashemus from Moshe Zakudo from Italy, and it's got all the different permutations and ways of writing it. In fact, one of the big, art, well, you'll see in a second, it was in Metz that people started to say, the Kamiyas he gives really say Shabtai Tzvin in some coded fashion. It doesn't say it openly, but if you use some kind of a code, you can see Shabtai Tzvi and things like this. Of course, he says it's not true, and you're not supposed to open them anyway. And for 10 years or so, uh, he was a rub in Metz. He said, listen, it's a nice community. It's a rich community. It ain't Prague. The Jewish community was a fraction of the size of Prague, and the yeshiva he had there was nowhere like Prague. It's like saying you're moving from Lakewood and you're going to, I don't know, you know some smaller town in the U.S., it's uh, it's nice. It's very nice, and so on and so forth. It ain't like what you know. That's that that kind of way of talking, and uh, you know he really pined for the old place, but he can't go back because he's Chai Misa. I told you before, he's not going back. Uh, 
here, I'll tell you a really cute story. Uh, other communities wanted him, and they offered him double salary and better returns for a bigger yeshiva. I'm thinking specifically of Firth, which was near Nuremberg. That's the important big yeshiva center in South Germany once upon a time in Bavaria. There's a three big three-volume book, three volumes by Rabbi Hamburger, all about the history of the yeshiva in Firth over many centuries. And they wrote to him and offered him the moon, and he accepted but he had already signed the contract with Metz, which committed him to staying for 12 years, or else he pays a $6,000 fine. Well, not $6,000, but 6000 gulden. And he just couldn't pay, so he was stuck in Metz. So, you know, it was really funny in that way. He writes back to them. He was afraid to tell them. It's a constant story. This was the uh, rabbinical politics of the old year. You First, you signed a contract for three years, and then you signed a contract for 12 years, and then the rest is for life or something like that. Uh, when the tw- but you see, he just wasn't happy there. When the 12 years were up or so, he, so people heard about him, and the communities offered him to, to, to get the job. Not Prague, uh, even though he would love for that. He's Chayv Misa in Prague. So he can't go to, to the Austrian Empire. He can't do it. And so he took Hamburg, or the, what they called the three communities at that time, Altona, Hamburg, Wandsbeck, three places which are all part of the big city of Hamburg today, but at that time were three different jurisdictions, and they shared one rabbin and one basin. In North Germany, you know, on the, uh, on the Baltic or whatever, or near the Baltic, it's on the Atlantic side. A big uh, a port city. And it's a Hoshua community. You know, no question about it. These are the, everything I'm mentioning are the important, well-to-do Kehillas of yesterday that could pay a decent salary and also support a yeshiva, Prague, Metz, uh, uh, Altona, Hamburg, Hansberg, Firth, you know, Frankfurt. These are the, these are the places. And that's where he spent the rest of his life, just about. Uh, this happened in 1750-51. When he came there, he said, this is my last stop. Uh, Prague is not going to work out, but I hope it'll work out over here. Eva la Moshe you know, he has a play on words. Eva la Moshe you say he desired to dwell there. Alvav hey is equal to Ahu, Altona Hamburg, Pansbeck. And he's into all the word plays and things like that. And he figured he'll do the same thing. He'll, he'll give his amazing shiurim, so he'll build a yeshiva there. He will, they had money. Uh, he'll give his drushes, and uh, by this time also he's a big posek and all the rest of it. Uh, no question about that. And uh, even though I didn't talk about Sakalacha before, but he was. And the Kabbalah stuff, whatever. And this is where it happened that because Yaakov Emden lived in the city, in Altona, and he hated him. And then not Stamen de Velterine, you know, this is, this is something I don't want to get into today because I'm already at 30-some minutes. And that will take me another three and a half hours. But let's put it this way. He made a big mistake moving to a town where one of his big enemies was located because they immediately looked for things he was doing wrong. And even though, I said this before, Ryakandan says, he was a good speaker, although later he denied that. And his first speech was blasting the community for um, having, what was it, figurines. You know, um, like we say, porcelain uh, furniture, you know, porcelain little statues. It's like a Vodazaro. And they all broke the statues. He said, you know, he was an incredible orator. You know, people spend money. After they heard that Muslim moose, they went home and broke all their furniture. Uh, it was that type. And I also remember that the first Shabbos, he had such a big reputation as a Makobal that everybody, when they walked by to say good Shabbos to the new rabbi, they put their hat over their forehead so you can't see what's the forehead. Because if he's a real Arizal type guy, he can read what you're thinking. Who wants that? You know, this is the kind of reputation he had. However, right then, this is 1751, hit the end, the name should fight, because they said they discovered Camillus. 
that he wrote that are clearly Shabtai Tzvi. All hell broke loose. And a lot of big rabbis said he's he's a he's a, a Shabtai Tzvi, but a, a follower. A lot of others didn't. Um, he had hundreds of rabbis on his side. They had lots of rabbis on their side, and that's why the two sides are pretty even. And for the rest of the 1750s, first for the next several years, this great controversy raged. But I want to give you the plain, simple facts in the few minutes I have left over. People like Rabbi Yaakov Emden and the Penelope elders, they told the community, the rabbi you hired is a heretic, therefore you should fire him. Okay, let's be clear about that. That's what they demanded. They had no proof, but they said they had circumstantial proof. And uh, and you can fire him. And the circumstantial proof consists of the Camillus. And you can look, they're online, I bet. You know, there's nothing secret about what I'm talking about. Uh, you can, there are pictures of them. And you can, you know, do your own atbash and all that sort of thing and see if it comes out, if, whether you agree with it or not. And, you know, he, did, he said it means something else, obviously. And the community, when approached by these rabbis, said, get out of here. We're not listening. You guys are nuts. He's a big Talmud Chacham and he's a from guy. Get off our backs. They said, no, you must fire him. He said, we were not going to fire him. The reason we're not going to fire him is because we think you're wrong. You're liars. You hate him. And you're Lashon Harnix and all that. They said, no, we're not Lashon Harnix. We're trying to stamp out Shabtai Tzvi. They said, so the community said, so are we, but he's not Shabtai Tzvi. And so this was the long and the short of it. They were, he, he had to stand for election several times, and he won overwhelmingly each time. So the public out there, the broad public, did not buy into this. And his own Kahila did not buy into this. Now, there were a few Yechidim that did, but the masses were convinced that everything that's said about him is not true. That's why the from world today done hold of it. Nothing was ever proved. And uh, if I make a, a statement about you and I don't back it up in a legal way, then you can't, then you, I give no money to it. Uh, it's more complicated than I'm saying. There's no question about that. But I'm giving you the, the stark basic facts. And so for the rest of his life, from 1751 till he died in 1764, at the age of 70, he was the rove in this city. And there was nothing any of his enemies could do about it. They could only say, you got the wrong guy, he's a communist, He's a secret spy, this and that and the other. Uh, and it is true that he had a son. He had several children. One of the sons did become a big Shabtai Tzvi follower. Uh, he was a weirdo and a Sybarite and all this, no question about it. And that just fed fuel to the fire. But just take it from me, because I know this better than most people. You're going to find as many proofs on this side and proofs on that side. There are letters from his students in Hamburg. Like somebody wrote to the note of you and he says, Oh, my son went to the Yeshiva. It's all Kfira. It's all Kfira. On the other hand, I can show you letters from the Rav and from some of the firmest rabbis. Oh, I had this chus to learn in that yeshiva in Hamburg under Yonason Neimshitz, and all we heard was Kedusha Tahira. You know, so what are, you, what are you supposed to do with all this? You see, the the, the public likes the controversy. The, the fact that he had so many people against him, even though he had a majority for him, obviously hurt, and his enemies tried to get him in trouble with their cause, You know, with the Geisha courts. But that backfired because the truth of the matter is, and I don't even have time to speak about it today, with his law degree and his context, he had much better uh, context in relation with the, with, with the Goyim than any other rabbi of the 18th century. Uh, he knew the Jesuits in Prague and was actually able to persuade them to allow him to print a copy of the Gemara because at that time they were burning all the Gemaras, provided that he would censor it from things that are not offensive to Christianity. But when he did that, then Yaakov and the other says, see, he's, he's cooperating with the Catholics. He said, no, I'm not cooperating Catholic. I'm just trying to get a Gemara printed because we don't have any books. How are we going to be able to run a yeshiva? And so on and so on and so forth. But the king of Denmark and all these other people backed him 
and not his enemies. Every time they tried to take it, his enemies tried to take it to the Vada Arba Aratzas, the leading rabbis and leaders in Poland, which still had power. Well, guess what? The Vada Arba and Yaakov Endin wrote a letter to them, I forget what it's called, Safkas or something like that, in which he called them every name in the book. And even, this is going to drive you crazy, they accused him of and that's not an exaggeration. They say he's Mizana with his own daughter. I mean, they went, you know, off the wall. And Devada Abrazza said like this, you guys are nuts, he's a Kaddish Vitar, and you really lost your minds. And so they backed him. So everybody he, they turned to ended up backing the Sanations. They wrote to the Sephardim. The Sephardim said, we don't see nothing wrong with him. He's okay. And they, they wrote to Eretz Yisrael. Same thing. So it was like very frustrating for the opponents. You understand? But even with all those confirmations, it embittered his life. And what's really interesting is in the last couple of years, when he hit his late 60s, he wanted to give up the job and just move back to Prague and be a private citizen. Ha ha, as if something like this was ever possible. At that time, the rabbi in Prague was a noted Behuda, in the 1760s, who already stood in tight with the Austrian government. Maria Theresa was still the empress, and he was in tight with her because he strongly supported the Austrian army during the next wars, the Seven Years' War. And so she liked him. She didn't like any Jew, but if you, ha- if you had to have a rabbi, she'd rather have him. And he wrote her a famous letter, which is very controversial, in which he said, it's him or me. If Abishas comes here, he's a Shabtai Tzminik, he'll mess up my community, he'll cause Machlokas to Kamo, my position will be untenable, and if he comes, I leave. Whereupon she said, he, he's not coming. You know, so he wasn't able to return to his beloved city, spent the last years of his life, and he died in Hamburg. Now, I've only scratched the surface, I'm going longer than usual. I think you have an impression of what I talked about that only scratched the surface. But here's somebody that is so unusual because it's A-plus in many categories. You find some people are good rabbis, but they're not good speakers. Or they're good Rosh Hashivas, but they're not good Mekobolim. I hear somebody hit A-plus in every direction. Uh, he, as you know, he published two, um, as you know, maybe you don't know, he published two famous farm, the crazy place on the Yerodea, which is still used, and the, and the Urim Batumim. The Ketsos wrote a thing to, to slug up the Urim Batumim. You know, that's what the Ketsos is. But these are two huge areas. Somebody once wrote, I don't know if it's true, and it's a good story. Why did he write a halacha? Because uh, here's how the story goes. There's, I think I, maybe I told you the story when I said Pnei Yeshua. The Pnei Yeshua wrote on Lamdas, and you understand he should have thrown a halacha. Pnei Yeshua said, everybody thinks I know halacha, but I know Lamdas, I'll prove, I'll write the Pnei Yeshua. And you understand he should say, everybody thinks I know Pilpul, but I don't know Halacha Lamaisa, I'll write the crazy place in the Urban Uh What can I tell you? They don't tell you these legends about you and me. Uh, but he but he was a figure of controversy uh, because he stood out. That, who has a law degree? Uh, you know, in one of his speeches, he says, you don't really understand. It's in the Yaris Rosh. You don't understand Chosha Mishpah until you understand the Buras Corpus Civilis, until you understand the Holy Roman Empire, German Imperial uh, System of Law, to compare different law systems. What God writes like this? You know, it's, it's, it's extremely unusual. So the final verdict on Jonas Amish that everybody will agree to is highly unusual. Um, besides that, everybody's, uh, the, the, the controversies still rage on today. And as I said before, I only told you a percent of a percent. But beyond that, uh, I'm not getting into that today. And with that, I wish you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www. 
support.rabbidavidkatz.com.